be with you. Lift up your hearts. Indeed, with voices uplifted and hearts opened, we gather together in the nave of Marsh Chapel, 735 Commonwealth Avenue, across the airwaves of WBUR 90.9 FM, and via internet signals at WBUR.org. This week, we continue our Darwin and Faith National Summer Preacher Series, marking the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth and 150th anniversary of the publication of his landmark on the origin of species. We welcome to the pulpit today Reverend Dr. Rodney Peterson, the Executive Director of the Boston Theological Institute and the Co-Director of Boston University's School of Theology Program in Religion and Conflict Transformation. Furthermore, we are grateful to have with us Aram Demergen conducting the Marsh Chapel Summer Choir, and the organist is Glenn Goda. Dean Hill sends his regards as he is away these weeks, preaching the gospel in the voice of Marsh Chapel across the country. We invite you, as you are so moved, to join us in our life together by presence, response, support, and ministry among us. For those listening on airwaves and internet signals especially, we encourage you to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. More information about social networking, podcasts, and the opportunity for online giving are available on the Marsh Chapel website, bu.edu chapel. Now, let us stand as we are able in the praise of God.
us pray. Almighty God, you have given your only Son to be for us a sacrifice for sin, and also an example of godly life. Give us grace to receive, thankfully, the fruits of this redeeming work, and to follow daily in the blessed steps of his most holy life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please be seated for a time of silent confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God. A lesson from the first book of Kings, chapter 3, verses 3 through 14. Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father David. Only he sacrificed and offered incense at the high places. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the principal high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I should give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant, my father David, because he walked with you in faithfulness and righteousness and an uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne today. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, although I am only a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous that they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches, or for the life of your enemies, but have you asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, I now do according to your word. Indeed, I give you a wise and discerning mind. No one like you has been before you, and no one like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor all your life. No other king shall compare with you. If you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Please join with me in reading Psalm 111 with the antiphon. the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart and the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, who stood by all who in them. Full of honor and majesty are the works of the Lord, whose righteousness endures forever. The Lord provides food for those who fear him and is ever mindful of his covenant. The Lord has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just, and his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. The Lord sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is God's name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. The praise of the Lord endures forever. as you are able for the singing of the Gloria Dei, the reading of the gospel, and the singing of our hymn. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John, chapter 6, verses 51 through 58. Glory to you, O Lord. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like that which your ancestors ate, and they died. But the one who eats this bread will live forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ.
seated. During these dog days of summer, I'm always reminded of what a cleric on the other side of the river once told me. I asked him how could he preach in chapel after chapel in England in the summertime when most people were away at the coast. And he just turned to me and he said, Rodney, I just think of all the saints past, present, and the future, the angels, the archangels, and all of those who are present with us. And so while we have a good audience today, I think of all of those uh, who are still with us, even though unseen. The text for my remarks today are, is, is taken from 1 Kings 3, 3 through 14, a discerning heart. When Solomon succeeded David as king of Israel, he prayed for wisdom and a discerning heart. The discernment for which he prayed is often seen to be lodged in Psalm 111, a classic psalm that praises the works and the wisdom of God. When I think of ourselves gathering here today, I think of the 2.1 billion other Christians gathered similarly around the world. Now, one billion is a difficult number to comprehend, much less 2.1 billion. But an advertising agency did a good job of putting that figure into perspective in one of its releases, and if you'll permit me. A billion seconds ago, it was 1959. A billion minutes ago, Jesus was alive. A billion hours ago, our ancestors were living in the Stone Age. A billion dollars ago, the rate the government of Washington spends it was only eight hours and 20 minutes ago. Well. This act of discernment is valued all the more in a year that has seen stock market values plunge, the economy bottom out, and indebtedness to others soar, as many have been moved into the ranks of the unemployed, and perhaps some of us. All of this as we struggle with our role in conflict overseas and health care here at home. So Solomon turned to the God of his fathers, to the work and wisdom of God, the words of the text recall Yahweh's directive to the Israelites following the Deuteronomic version of the Decalogue and Joshua's exhortation and renewal of the covenant prior to his death. In each instance, the message is clear. This is the way of the Lord. Follow it and you will prosper. In this spirit of a discerning heart, I want to ask two questions, draw some conclusions, and then move toward an application for us today in this year of the, of the Darwinian Bicentennial. First, where do discerning hearts turn for wisdom? Solomon, we are told, turned to the directives of God. Religion serves and has served as a source of discernment for many. Should it still do so? And for what purpose do we gather here on this warm August morning? The same question might also be asked of philosophy and aesthetics, particularly as it has been in Western Europe and North Atlantic cultures. The functional value of religion is lodged precisely in its role in shaping how we put the world together for purposes of personal and social identity. It frames meaning and provides a narrative framework for life. The nature of religion for personal and social identity was noted by Sigmund Freud at the beginning of the last century. Although he rejected its function, as well as that of philosophy and aesthetics, in favor of the emerging sciences as he knew them. In a defining publication, The Question of a Weltanschauung, he described a Weltanschauung or worldview as an intellectual construction which solves all the problems of our existence uniformly on the basis of one overriding hypothesis, which accordingly leaves no question unanswered and in which everything that interests us finds its fixed place. Accordingly, the sciences overtake other competitors to define a worldview, such as philosophy, aesthetics, and religion. According to Freud, it is from the scientific worldview alone that we gain access to knowledge about origins ultimate happiness and direction in life. And hence, the fervor with which many have turned to the Darwinian hypothesis is expressed in the origin of the species. In other words, not religion, and in our own day of multiple religious narratives, not necessarily in any particular religion, 
Can we provide guidance? Or so the storyline goes. So where, do we so where do discerning hearts turn for wisdom today? The answer has been to science, perhaps the works of God, perhaps more so than the words of God. This is not an easy question in the 21st century. When we look back on the 20th century, we see, not, we see the interplay of religion, philosophy, and aesthetics, and the sciences, and to the role that each has played. Now, we cannot rehearse all of that here. Charles Darwin and his heritage has played its role, and the origin and publication of the origin of the species and it's appropriate that we celebrate this work and its observations in this bicentennial calendar year of Darwin's birth and the sesquicentennial anniversary of the origin of the species. Yet, as with religion, philosophy, and aesthetics, not every road taken in the interpretation of the scientific legacy of Charles Darwin has provided wisdom for the way ahead. Science itself, conceived of as providing vision for the survival of the fittest, much in line with the paradigm I outlined a moment ago, was not always a fit guide. Take the attempt to find in science salvation, as depicted so vividly this past year at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Following Germany's defeat in World War II and during the ensuing political and economic crises in the Weimar Republic, Ideas known as racial hygiene or eugenics began to inform population policy, public health education, and government-funded research. By keeping the unfit alive to reproduce and multiply, eugenics proponents argued modern medicine and costly welfare programs interfered with natural selection. The concept Charles Darwin applied to the survival of the fittest, it was thought, in animal and, and, and the plant world. Eugenics advocates in Germany included physicians, public health officials, and academics in the biomedical fields, on the political left and right, serving on government committees and conducting research on heredity. Experts warned that if the nation did not produce more fit children, it was headed for extinction. Eugenic ideas were absorbed into the ideology and platform of the nascent Nazi party during the 1920s. Current debate over financing medical care is beginning to raise many of these same fears, whether legitimately or not. Arguments for ethnic cleansing in many of the conflicts we have witnessed over the past quarter century have frequently drawn upon, for purposes of value, the elimination of the unfit. Is it the survival of the fittest, as Herbert Spencer believed he discerned from the works of Darwin, the way forward? Or does science, even Darwinian science, give us a much more complex framework from which to foster a discerning heart? We might begin with the question Spencer felt was posed by Darwin, that of the survival of the fittest, and ask, who are the strong and who are the weak? Our answer to this question cannot be simply to give up on science, although this is the case for many. Islam is the answer runs a popular political slogan. With the Hindu twa, a Mahavamsa mindset, iron wall Zionism, and apocalyptic Christian fundamentalism in close pursuit. Who are the strong and who are the weak is my second question. One answer was given in the attempt to find in science salvation in the development of the biological state to the solution of the ambiguities of history and discernment seen preeminently in, Germany, in Germany's National Socialism. Nazism was applied biology, stated Hitler deputy Rudolf Hess. It gave answer to who are the strong and who are the weak. History belonged to the survival of the fittest, and the rest indeed is history. History and policies that were put in place not only in Germany, but also in various provinces, cantons, and states in Canada, Switzerland, and the United States in the 1920s and 1930s. But in the years immediately following the devastation of World War II, the medical doctor and psychologist Paul Tournier raised the question of the strong and the weak in the book of that title in a very different way. He elevated persons 
who a utilitarian society might judge inferior, and define for us the sometimes misleading projections of a strong person. Through his research and study, he contrasted the events and dynamics that lead some to become weak and others strong. The compelling truth he revealed is that ultimately, we may act very differently, but we are so much the same in our inner selves. A great book, equally helpful for strong leaders to understand themselves and those they may be tempted to look down upon, as well as for those who struggle with self-doubt and insecurity, intimidated by the strong. Contrary to philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's criticism of Christianity for the weakness he felt it fostered, Ternier turns the tables on such disdain and finds in it the strength for new life and the forgiveness toward reconciliation that it fosters. It was the weak St. Paul, in Friedrich Nietzsche's eyes, who wrote, whenever I am weak, then I am strong, 2 Corinthians 2.10, a dictum that finds its outlet in Paul's own vision of vocation, today mirrored in stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. In fact, one of the most striking developments in political life in the early 20th century is the attention given to stories of forgiveness and the evidence of, the trans of its transformative power. These stories of people of diverse faiths and cultures seeking to find the way forward in personal or communal, common uh, civic life, finding the courage to reconcile themselves with enemies after wrongdoing is in itself remarkable. This is all the more striking given the cultural evolution that has brought us to this place, where forgiveness is no longer seen to be simply the concern of religious people, or a matter of irrelevance, or an unworthy moral ideal in the face of injustice. Rather, forgiveness is seen to be integral to a world on the verge of destruction. In one recent collection of narratives recounting the transformative power of forgiveness, Michael Henderson gathers together the stories of persons like Desmond Tutu, Benazir Bhutto, Rajmohan Gandhi, Jonathan Sachs, the Dalai Lama, and others in an anthology of hope toward a geopolitics of mercy. Weaving together threads of politics, inherited identity and history, wisdom and theology, Henderson gives us an account of how forgiveness has touched private and public life through processes of transitional justice and most notably South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We live in a world of holocausts, gulags, killing fields, suicide bombings, and ethnic cleansing. Forgiveness is not, the, is not the way of the weak, but a journey for the strong. The report launched by the World Health Organization in 2003, World Report on Violence and Health, asks us to consider the violence of our world as not only a political phenomenon, but as a public health priority, as a leading cause of disease, as a matter of domestic abuse, as a factor in mental health and of concern for children and of central concern to the health of the next generation. Forgiveness is frequently thought of as the way of the weak, not the strong. But here follows a deeper perspective on the Darwinian legacy. It is not so much the survival of the fittest as perceived by Herbert Spencer with implications for human society, but a perspective marked out by geophysicist Xavier Le Pichon that connects fragility or weakness with progress. In Ecce Homo, Behold Humanity, Le Pichon writes of the formative experience he had of a visit to the home for the destitute and dying in Calcutta. He writes, throughout the ages, we have to discover that our community is not only made up of the highly motivated competing individuals as in my own scientific world, but that it includes fragile, vulnerable, suffering individuals who reveal to ourselves our own fragility, our own vulnerability, who actually lay bare our own sufferings that have been hidden in our deepest self. And so following two questions, this observation on fragility, the evolution of life in the gospel. Le Pichon goes on to make eight points drawing out in an innovative way 
drawing upon in an innovative way his own experience in light of the Darwinian legacy. And first of all, he scores the importance of weakness. From his own research with tectonic plates, weaknesses and imperfections, he argues, facilitate the evolution of a system. A system which is too perfect is also too rigid because it does not need to evolve. This is true in politics, it is true within a society, within families, and within nature. A perfectly smoothly running system without any default is a closed system that can only evolve through a major commotion. The evolution occurs only through revolution. The significance of this, he argues, is drawn to the poles of fragility and vulnerability in human society. That is, a, human, a society is deemed to be humane to the degree to which the organization of that society centers around the offspring and suffering and death. A society, he writes, is humane in the degree to which it takes care of the lives of those who suffer most without either rejecting or marginalizing them. Thirdly, he believes that he can find examples of this human behavior in, pre in prehistoric societies. And to illustrate this point, he draws upon several cases uh, from the history of early humanity. Fourthly, the radical novelty of the polar fragility and vulnerability is seen by not excluding the infirm, the weakest of the weak. In this, humans give up at least partially the law of the survival of the fittest through efficiency that prevails in the world governed by the harsh laws of evolution. The Pichon goes on to write in Genesis, when God creates Adam and presents him to the different living creatures, Adam realizes that none of them resemble him. Pope John Paul II has commented about the discovery of Adam of what he called his metaphysical solitude. What is the origin of this solitude? Is it possible to identify it with precision? Is it not related to the discovery made by Cain after the murder of his brother Abel when he hears an inner voice ask him, where is your brother Abel? What did you do to your brother? Is the question that haunts humans, that haunts humans, and that has created the metaphysical solitude discussed by John Paul II. The Pichon goes on to draw from his theory of tectonic plates and observation of prehistoric humanity to talk about the suffering person as the source of our humanization, to look at the prophets of the sixth century, Buddha, Laotzu, Confucius, Motsu, and preeminently second Isaiah as extraordinary prophets building on this insight. He draws us seventhly to the significance of the suffering servant in second Isaiah and the model to be emulated. Compassion for others pushes one toward the oblivion of oneself, perhaps first independently advocated by the four songs of the suffering servant in Second Isaiah, written during the exile of the Jewish people in Babylon, to become one of the cornerstones of Christianity. And so we come back to the dictum that Le Pichon cites at the end, as raised earlier, the power of the weak, whenever I am strong, weak, then I am strong, 2 Corinthians 12.10. Who are the weak and who are the strong? The path of evolution is not only physical, but also psychological, one that pertains to our humanization. And the gospel has its parallel in Matthew, in Matthew uh, 25, 35 through 40. When I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink, I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous, perhaps the strong ones, will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. So how do we apply these two questions and this observation about fragility, evolution, and the gospel 
to ourselves today? Well, we might turn our attention to three points. First of all, care for the weak and the vulnerable must govern our thinking about health care. It is in our fragility and vulnerability that we find our humanity. We witnessed a different picture under the auspices of the biological state and medicine used to foster the thinking of the master race. This has no bona fide record in the Darwinian record. It's the thinking that developed afterwards and so sought to try to reinforce itself with the Darwinian state. Secondly, given the historical record of persecution by dominant societies of peoples believed to be subservient, a humane reconstruction of politics can only happen through forgiveness and promise, as argued by journalist Hannah Arendt in The Human Condition in 1959. So whether it is health care or the politics of intercommunal life, this wisdom of Solomon is found grounded in the mutual interaction of science and religion, the works and words of God. A fit reminder in this, Charles Darwin's bicentennial year of his birth, the, ses the sesquicentennial of the origin of the species. A fit reminder and a caution as to how we read science and how we read religion. And also, we might say in conclusion, of the importance of theology, the human community, and in doing what we do in this place and this time on this morning. May God add his blessing to these reflections on his word that we might develop a discerning heart. Amen. in heaven, we praise you, Father, and with our whole hearts we give you thanks for the wonderful blessings you have given us. For we didn't choose you, you chose us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, for his death on the cross made reconciliation with you possible. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Help us to grow as your children. We offer our hearts for cleansing so that we may approach others with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. With reverence, we acknowledge that you are the one and true and living God and pray that we may follow the example of your compassion and forgive as you forgive. As we continue to grow in faith, help us to let love be our guide and peace rule our hearts. We recognize that we need your, need your help and are truly thankful for it. We carry your words and lessons in our heart, Christ. As the source of all wisdom, Lord, grant us the wisdom to discern good from evil and the courage to do the right thing. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be a reflection of God's love. Hear our prayer for all who suffer. Grant them the peace of your presence. We thank you for the courage and dedication of our troops, first responders, teachers, clergy, and all who serve. We ask that you provide them strength and the peace of your presence. We pray for our elected officials. Give them the courage to unite rather than to divide. Give them the wisdom to work together for the good of the country. We pray for leaders around the world touch their hearts, and renew their spirits to work together to make progress towards peace. 
Help us all to recognize and accept our responsibilities as citizens of the world. Hear our prayer, loving Father, for we ask all of these things in the name of the way and the truth and the light, Jesus Christ, and pray as he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The peace of the Lord be always with you. And also with you. Hello there. Hello to all of those of you who are sitting here with us in the sanctuary, and hello to all of you who are listening on the podcast or on WBUR. I'm glad to have you here today, and I'm glad to be here. Um, I would first note to those of you who are sitting here in the sanctuary that we have these red pads that are in the, at the end of the pews towards the center aisle. Um, if you would just fill those out for us so that we can get to know your names and so that you all can get to know the names of those who are sitting by you. Um, I'd also like to note again that we have um, a Twitter account and we're also on Facebook. So if you're interested in finding out what's going on at Marsh Chapel, it's a great way to find out. Um, we also have started a Marsh Chapel alumni group on Facebook. So if you um, were in any way, shape, or form involved in Marsh Chapel, if you were a congregant, if you were in the choir, if you were an usher, I would encourage you to check that out. Just search for Marsh Chapel Alumni Group on Facebook. We also have our regular coffee hour downstairs in the Marsh Room, and that is a great way to get to know each other, and we have coffee and refreshments, so we'd love to see you there if you have time. One more thing, I've been trying to encourage you guys to um, call in, write letters, email if you have time. We would love to hear from you. I got a letter from John from Belbricka a few days ago, and it was a very moving letter. And so, you know, it's just very nice to hear those kinds of, of um, responses from those who are listening or who who are with us in the sanctuary. So if you would like to um, get in touch with us, you can send us a letter. And our address here is 735 Commonwealth Avenue, Boston, 02215. You can give us a call at 617-353-3560. Or you can email chapel at bu.edu. We would love to hear from you. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
steadfast God, who has given us all that is good. Accept these gifts offered in love, that together we might walk before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart to glorify your name in the world. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. shine upon you. May the Lord grant you peace this day and forevermore. Amen.